Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode 344 of Charlotte's Podcast, Beyond 300. I'm here with co-host Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue. And again, we've got a uh, fun lineup for you today. Uh, yeah, we do. We're going to start first with an author feature with author and award-winning filmmaker Nick Brooks in his novel Promise Boys, which Kirkus calls breathtakingly complex and intriguing, and Booklist calls a top-notch page-turner and deep character study that will grip readers. Yep, and up next we have a two-minute tip from Paul Reale of Charlotte Lit called Rules of Writing Part 2, Outlining and Planning. And then we have a writing topic discussion with a very new blogger on the show, Landis Wade, <laughs> with his blog, The Three Action Book Launch. <laughs> who is he? Yeah, who is that guy? And we're going to finish up today with uh, reading recommendations, uh, a couple of book pitches, uh, and what's coming next uh, on the podcast. But first, what's up with the podcast books? So this month we're celebrating the release of book four, hard to believe, book four already. It's uh, book four in the Right Quote series titled Storytelling, Inspiration, and Research, and we are inspired by this series. Yes, we are, aren't we, Sarah? Yeah, for sure. Um, we're very excited to share these inspirational and practical quotes. They come from over 500 podcast interviews. The authors quoted are hardworking, award-winning, super talented, New York Times bestselling authors in more than 33 U.S. states and five countries. Yep, and this book reveals how they really feel about storytelling, inspiration, and research. Um, and to learn more, you just go to our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, and click on the podcast books tab in the menu bar. Um, you can order this book online and in print wherever books are sold. Also, don't forget that the first book in the Write Quote series, which is called The Writing Life, can be downloaded for free online. That's our gift to the writing universe. <laughs> so look for that link on the podcast books page of our website. Yeah, and you can, uh, when you go to our podcast books page on the website, you'll see uh, the book covers and the links for all the books, including uh, those that are out that you can order and those that are uh, available to pre-order. Uh, next uh, in the series is going to be uh, book five, Writing Techniques and Characters. That's a July 1 release. Uh, book six, Writing Community Revision and Editors. That's an August 1st release. Book seven, The Emotional Writing Journey. That's September 1st. And on October 1st, we have book eight, Publishing and Book Marketing. And then if you want to receive all eight of these wonderful books for free, you can join our street team. Um, just go to the link on the contact tab at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Also on the podcast books page at the website, there's a link. All you have to do to receive all the books for free, the eBooks, is just agree to leave short, honest reviews. Um, just a few words about how you felt about the books. They're not heavy reads, but they're full of weighty tips and reflections. Yeah, my dog's a member of the uh, street team, so... <laughs> <laughs> she also wanted to remind you guys that if you become a Patreon supporter of the podcast, it's only $5 a month, um, and we'll give you all the books for free as soon as they release, and that's in addition to the 150 exclusive episodes of uh, content that you don't get on the regular show um, on the craft and business of writing, so lots of good stuff. All right, folks. Uh, well, right after this, we're going to start in with Act One, our interview segment of the show, so uh, stay with us. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com 
or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, listeners, uh, welcome to Act One. This is our interview segment of the show. We've got a author interview today that uh, Hannah did with Nick Brooks. Uh, the book title is Promised Boys. Uh, Sarah, tell us a little bit about Nick. Sure. Um, Nick has had a fascinating career so far. He's an author and award-winning filmmaker from Washington, D.C. His short film, Hoop Dreamin', earned him the George Lucas Scholar Award and was a finalist in the Forbes 30 Under 30 Film Fest. He's currently in development for his first feature film, We Were Born Kings, with Mandalay Pictures. As a storyteller, Nick strives to tell heartfelt tales that are socially relevant and inspiring. Before he became a filmmaker, he was an educator working with at-risk youth, and many of his stories are colored by his experiences with children and families of his community. Um, He loves hip-hop-driven content, themes of coming of age and genre bending concepts. Um, he hails from Washington, D.C., and he's a 2020 graduate of the University of South Carolina's TV and film production program, where he earned both the prestigious George Lucas Scholar Award and the James Bridges and Jack Larson Award for writing and directing. All right, Hannah, give us a little insight to what the book's about and also some of the praise. Yeah, Nix is just like one of the coolest people I've ever met. He is so um, soulful, I feel like is the best word to put it. He's so passionate about everything. You can totally feel the authenticity of this story. Um, Promise Boys, it's his first book, um, and it's about three boys at at an urban charter school investigating their principal's murder during a high-stakes 24-hour day. It's a page-turning murder mystery thriller that shines light on themes of social social justice and educational um, inequities, shaping this novel to be both a commercial and literary blockbuster. Um, Ton of good reviews views for this book. Booklist says it's a top-notch page turner and deep character study and it'll grip readers who won't want to stop reading. Um, Kirkus, another star review, so is Booklist. Kirkus says it's breath- breathtakingly complex and intriguing and then Publishers Weekly also gave it a star review and says Brooks excels in creating protagonists worthy of applause and truly foul villains whose presences linger long after this atmospheric read ends. It's a very good book. All right. Well, uh, let's get to it, uh, listeners. Hey, listeners. We're here today with Nick Brooks, who is the author of Promise Boys. Um, This is one of the best books I've read this year, for sure. Um, Nick, I I recently gave birth to my first baby last uh, fall. Oh, (laughs) congrats. Thank you so much. Uh, Baby girl. I know you have two girls, too, right? Absolutely. Yeah, they just turned two uh, last month. So. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Getting older. Um, I feel like since having her, and I don't know, you probably thought about your girls too while you were writing. It's just like I look at YA and YA books a lot differently. Just kind of trying to curate a library in my house just of things that I want them to read as, or yeah, her and any other siblings they get older. Um, But I love this book so much, and I feel like it's a really important book for, I mean, everyone to read. It was really amazing. Um, And I know you're from D.C., right? Yep. Did that play a role? I'm sure it did. And just like why you wanted to set this book in D.C.? Oh, 100 percent. You know, um, I left home, I want to say about 10 years ago now. And, uh, you know, just on this journey and I've been wanting to get back <laughs> ever since. And, um, you know, pandemic hit right around the time I started yeah. to, to write Promise Boys. And, you know, I've been wanting to tell stories in and around my city. And, and this felt like the perfect, perfect opportunity. Uh, so definitely being from D.C., you know, played a huge role. And then also really in anything I do, you know, I really love my my stories to feel authentic. Um, I like to say that uh, if it doesn't feel authentic to me or if it doesn't feel real to me, then there's no way it can feel real to my readers, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so writing about 
you know, uh, a school like this in, in, a, in, a, in a city like D.C., uh, it just felt like the, the most natural thing to do, especially because given my background and, and my time spent as an educator was all in D.C. So it's really just what I, you know, it's not just where I'm from, but it's what I know. And again, if, you know, if I can make it feel really real to the readers, that's that's the that's the best option for me. Right. And, you know, speaking of authenticity, I think with so your three main characters, JB, Ramon and Trey, um, you know, and just this the fact that they are all suspects in a murder, um, you were really able to kind of add this sort of like humanity to -hmm. these three characters. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit, just how you fleshed out all three of those characters and just, you know, adding sort of a human aspect to people that, you know, if you're starting out to read this book, you're like, oh, well, one of them committed a murder. You're, you know, that's kind of the plot line mm-hmm. how did you flesh out the characters and add sort of a human aspect to them yeah well for me with developing characters is i start with two questions you know what do they want and what do they need um and mm-hmm. so for each of them i give them a dream right we know jb he, he wants to make it out of his neighborhood he wants to go to college he wants better uh we know ramon wants to open his own restaurant we know trey wants to be a, a ball player um so really starting out with what they want and then what they need. Um, and for me, in developing that, it's all about the, the key relationships in their lives. And so for JB, we know his key relationship is with is with Kiana and Ramon is with his cousin and, and with Trey is with his uncle and his mom. Um, and these relationships, you know, I think are the thing when you talk about like humanizing the boys, those are the things that 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 humanize them. Right. It's like, you know, coming into the book, like you said, we're introduced to these characters through the POV of, of everyone else. And so people think that there's that they're you know could be capable of committing this crime and you know we see we meet the boys through the lens of what everybody else thinks of them the the stereotypes the perceptions but then when we meet the boys we completely turn that around and and we realize that they're just kids right full of love full of hope full of dreams and so for me the the idea of humanizing them was one that was really important for me it was really intentional but the, again the way that I think the way into that was talking about those things that we all have all have like you know, the key relationships in our lives, the, the the dreams and the hopes that we all have for our lives. Everybody can relate can relate to that, right? Like we all can relate to loved ones and, and, and hopes and dreams and fears, and they all have that. So I think that was the way to go about it. And um, again, I think it was important to kind of set it up, you know, set it up in a way where you think you're, you think these boys are going to be one way, and then you meet them and it's com- completely different. And in doing so, it kind of highlights just how human they are, you know? Right. Oh, absolutely. I think that's, you did a really great job of that. Is there one of the main three that you feel like you relate to the most? Yeah, for sure. JB. <laughs> JB was uh, the first character I wrote. And def- I mean, even like you, you kind of talked about like with, with the whole rap element, you know, and him writing the rhymes on the bus. And to be honest, I didn't realize, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I realized it subconsciously, but even like Kiana, yeah. like in my in high school, my girl, my high school sweetheart name was Kiana. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh so, my gosh. yeah, yeah. And, and you know what's Shout funny? Out Kiana, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's funny is her name was it's spelled differently, and also her name changed. Um, it's funny. Okay. I mean, let's get into to to nitty gritty. But her name ended up changing in high school to to something else. And so, and writing okay. a book, I just just named her Kiana, just just because again, that's just what I knew. That's what felt most real to me. You know. Right. And so, um, but yeah, definitely JB, I relate, I related to the most, but all, to, to be clear, all the boys have pieces of me, you know what I mean? Uh, for Ramon, the idea of being the the kind of hustler character, that was me in high school, totally. You know, I was always finding things I could sell, whether it was snacks, candy, DVDs, clothes. I mean, I was, that was just me in high school. Um, and then for Trey, you know, Trey being the kid who 
Trey really loves going to school because he hates being at home, <laughs> you know, and so he's kind of, he's kind of, uh, you know, some teachers will call him the class clown, but he's just having a good time. He's trying to lighten the mood and he's cracking the jokes. And all of that really covers up a lot of the emotional things that he's going through, that he's feeling and being in the household with his uncle, uh, you know, with the guy he feels doesn't love him. And that's tough on a kid, right? And so that was a little bit of the situation I went through growing up. You know, I had a stepfather who um, was really hard on me. And so all of these boys have pieces of me in, uh, and pieces of the boys that I've come in contact with, you know, throughout my education journey. You know, I used to coach Little League football. I used to mentor at-risk boys with an organization called Concerned Black Men out of D.C. And then, of course, I taught in the classroom uh, as, a, as a formal teacher. So uh, I, I got to see these kids from all different angles. And so each of the boys um, have pieces of, of all those kids and pieces of me. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, you can definitely feel how true the story is throughout the whole thing, just how much emotion that you put into it. Yeah. Um, it's it's very emotional, you know, it's it's a really great um, story that, you know, you just kind of find yourself caring for so many of the people in it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that, so I know Principal Moore, mm-hmm. who is the person who was um, he has a really intense idea of discipline. That's kind of what he enforces at Urban Promise, which is the school um, where all of the boys attend. Do you feel like that's something else you experience? You mentioned that your stepfather is that that mm-hmm. kind of idea of discipline. Is that something that you sort of fleshed out because of your own experiences too? A hundred percent. You know, I realized that uh, particularly as black men raising black boys, you can get into the ideas of toxic masculinity. But even deeper than that, I think just being just being black and this generational trauma and how we feel that our boys need to be they need to be disciplined to a T. Like they need to they can't even step out of line, right? Figuratively and literally in, in promise prep, right? They can't even they have to walk that blue line. Um because again, through generational trauma, we understand that uh, you know, once you go out into the world, then it's not gonna love you the same way I'll love you inside these walls. And so I may be hard on you, but it's for a reason, because once you step out of step out into into the world uh, and if you do step out of line, you can literally be killed for it. And so I think about kids like Trayvon Martin or Mike Brown or Tamir Rice, you know, who had a a toy gun at a at a park. You know, is these is these things where these kids lives are being taken um, and really not through any fault of their own. But again, it goes back to this idea of how disciplined are you? You know, how can you? How can you be a, a, a good boy, you know? And so I think this is a mindset, to be honest, that just stems from, that, that we can trace all the way back to slavery, that really comes from the idea of survival, comes from, grows out of trauma. And and so for me, just dealing with all of that myself and how I was raised and, you know, having to having to feel like I, I had to do every single thing perfectly or, or it would be a problem, um, you know, just trying to, just trying to tackle that idea and, for me, what I've really come to is that we need to pour more love into these kids, which is another thing, you know, that we see with our with our promise boys is that um, they just need more love. They need more grace, uh, you know, and I think that would start to shift some of the, the behaviors and things that we see in some of our inner city schools with our young boys. Right. And that kind of um, leads me to ask you about the term promise. So I feel like, you know, the, the book's called Promise Boys, right? The school is Urban Promise. Um, that word promise feels like it carries a lot of weight mm-hmm. in the story. So can you talk about that, like how you chose the title, the name of the school, um, what that means to these kids? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because um, the school is is promising, it's twofold. It's, it's promising these boys a better life 
a better opportunity, mm-hmm. um, you know, all of these different things. But when we go in, into the walls, we see that that, that promise is often broken. You know, um, the the way that Principal yeah. Moore treats these kids is, you know, I think many people would would deem unethical. Um, when we talk about is and we got to think like not just promise prep, but the idea of charter schools as a whole. Right. Which, of, co- of course, is something that I'm, I'm kind of touching on um, charter schools as a yeah. whole. Uh, or even think about like no child left behind, like all of these promises that are made uh, to kids in these communities that that are that are not fulfilled. Right. And uh, we think about the idea of charter schools and how they kind of are supposed to be a promise of a better opportunity, a better, better education. But a lot of times in even the charter schools that I've seen, when you step inside those walls again, it's the it's the exact opposite. Kids are not being allowed to flourish. Um, you know, if kids aren't meeting certain standards, a lot of times they're nudged out of the school so that the school can maintain whatever statistics, you know what I mean, are bringing in the dollars. Um, and so it's just, right. it's, it's basically it's irony. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the irony of this is, this school is, is uh, giving this promise to these kids. Um, but of course, when we look in under the hood, you know, it's the exact opposite. In fact, it's so far in the other way where you have a principal, well, I don't want to, I was about to give a, a big spoiler. <laughs> so I don't want to give any, I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't want to give any spoilers, but that, the, 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 the name is definitely meant to be uh, ironic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I've listened to you speak. Um, I've listened to several of your interviews, uh, which are all, I mean, you're such a wonderful speaker and you can tell how passionate you are about, I mean, art and uh, everything you write about and stories that you tell. Um, but, you know, I've also heard you talk about systems, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. I know at the very book, uh, you have a quote that is from John Taylor Gatto, and it calls like the education system psychopathic, mm-hmm. right? So and I just want to hear more of your thoughts on that about the systems in general. I mean, I think I totally agree. It's it's hard because, you know, it doesn't mean that teachers aren't passionate about what they're doing and what they're uh, teaching kids and just uh, everything that they do on a day-to-day basis. But the system is, you know, it's not quite right. So yeah. can you just talk about that? That a little bit? 100%, yeah. Um, so for me, I mean, you hit it on the head. The, the system's not quite right. It's broken. I think, and there's a lot of things that play into that. And one, I will say really quick, I'll say, because you touched on this, this is certainly not a book that attacks teachers or educators or administrators or principals um, because I've been in the classroom and I can tell you teaching is by far the hardest job I've ever had. Um, yeah. Schools are a lot of times under-resourced. They're understaffed. Um, overcrowded. You know what I mean? Like there's all these things underfunded. There's all these things that 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 play into why uh, a particular school may not be high, high performing. Um, and that is systemic. I think we think or, you know, we tend to think that everything in this country needs to look one way. And obviously that's not the case. Right. Kids from different backgrounds, from different communities all learn very differently. And I think we need to kind of break out of this mindset that schools need to have one curriculum, you know, it all needs to look one way for everybody because that's just not going to work. For me, it really feels like schools need to be more community led. Um, there needs to be a little more power within, you know, within the community um, because these are the people who know the kids the best. They know what the kids need. The, the the tough thing about that is that a lot of times in these like in these particularly un- underserved communities, the community itself doesn't have the bandwidth, right, to right. <laughs> or, or 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 the or the resources or the personnel to really yeah. uh, to really put the power behind the school system. So it's left up to the system, right? And so basically it's kind of this hamster wheel of um, really it's tied to capitalism, you know, um, of 
of, of yeah. a broken system. And I think it's, I don't really think we'll be able to fix the education system without fixing the communities because any teacher will tell you it's equal part teacher, but it's also equal part parent, right? We need, we, we need both to be happening in order to really raise a well-rounded and, and well-educated child. But again, when you look in a lot of these communities and I've taught, taught them and I've been, and again, I'm not blaming anybody within the community because I understand the, the systems at play, but a lot of times it's really hard for the communities and the families to, to galvanize around a student and around our kids because, um, because of poverty, you know what I mean? Like just quite, just quite frankly. Yeah. So it's, it's one of these things is just so tough and it's such a big country uh, question, but I do think the first step is to pour resources into communities because ultimately I think the schools will flourish as when the community flourishes, because I think they'll, you know, the people in and around that space will be able to pour back into their kids. And I just think, you know, I, and I've seen it firsthand with poverty is really hard for the adults to pull pour into the kids that the, the way that they should be. And so the kids get the short end of the stick and then it just creates this cycle. They grow up in the same environment and it starts over and over and over again, you know? Keeps going. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, one thing that I love that you've done is kind of create, I think one of the big steps too is just creating conversation around that mm -hmm. and a way to do that storytelling you know so and i'm sure you do that kind of in a lot of i know you're an artist in many different ways and I, I know for sure with this book you're totally kind of creating conversation around that systemic issue um would you be able to read us a little section from the book absolutely please? yeah i'll read a part that um this is the, the piece that i read when i when i open up for schools you know because it really just <laughs> it pulls the kids oh. in this is a chapter from from trey's pov's chapter six it's called trouble um and uh this is a piece where this is the day of the murder uh this is the and if you know the book you know it's told not just from different povs but different timelines right uh it's told from the perspective of 24 hours before the murder and then also post post the shot right the shot that that, that, that as i say um that that kills principal more we go forward from there as we start to solve the crime but everything before that is all in the past and it kind of paints the picture as to why these boys could potentially have done this thing. And so this is a chapter from Trey, it's called Trouble and I'll jump in. I almost jump out of my skin when my phone alarm goes off. I hop out of bed and throw on the same uniform from yesterday for the sake of time. If I'm late to school, that's an automatic detention and that's a no-go. I'm not missing this basketball game for nothing. I look around for my book bag, but I don't see it. And that promise, if you come to school without a book bag, they won't even let you in. If that happens enough times, they expel you. I run to the living room and see my bag by the couch. This is perfect. I scoop it up on the way out the door. Luckily, Uncle T is already out on his morning run. I jog down the street, praying I didn't miss the bus again. But after the day I had yesterday, there's no telling what might happen. When I turn the corner, people are loading onto the bus about two blocks away. I start to freak out until I notice a lady in a wheelchair at the back of the line. That's gonna buy me some time. I quicken my pace, jaywalk a couple of intersections and sure enough i run up just as the bus finishes loading some good luck on the day of one of the biggest basketball games of my career i start running plays in my head mentally rehearsing all the things that me and brandon worked on i imagine the last play of the game an assist from brandon and a game winning shot by me or maybe it's the other way around maybe i toss him the to rock and he gets that final bucket either way we got each other backs and that feels good when we pull up across the street from Promise, I press the button on the back door and I wait for the bus to slow to a stop. Once it does, the door's open and I'm off. As I walk towards Promise, I look for my school ID. 
while thinking back to what the coach said to me, that he needed me, that if I do well today, I'll make him proud. I think about my uncle's friend from Navy and how I have a chance to make my uncle proud too. I think about Brandon and how he might make his mom and dad, mom and dad proud. And I'm even more excited about the game. I can't seem to find my ID in my pocket, so I search my book bag. But when I look inside, my jaw drops. Holy shit. Instead of my ID or my gym clothes or even my textbooks, I'm staring at Uncle T's pistol. I remember I left my book bag by the couch right by Uncle T's. They look the same and I must have taken his by accident. I can't go back home. I'll miss half of school and there's no way I'll be able to play in the game if that happens. I wish I could just call Uncle T and tell him about the mistake that I made and ask him to help me. But that ain't my life. He's going to think I took it. He doesn't give me the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't do mistakes or excuses. What the hell am I going to do? And that's chapter six, Trouble. Oh my gosh, I love that you you chose that because especially at the beginning, I feel like you're kind of like, like Trey's this kid who's just doing a normal thing. He's excited about a basketball game, you know, mm-hmm. um, just thinking about something a normal teenage boy would be thinking yeah. about. And then, you know, you op- you get into that and it's like, oh, there's a gun in his backpack. <laughs> and I remember, God. Yeah. <laughs> I think he goes, I think that's exactly what I thought to myself yeah. too. Um, no, it was such a great, I, I think that's, you know, it kind of just goes from one end to the other very quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, we were talking about, you're sharing a little bit about your time as an educator for kids and just working with kids coming from um, a lot of different backgrounds. So did you ever see anything like that happen? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I saw nothing quite that extreme, but I saw, I mean, I'll tell you, I have some really heartbreaking stories. Like, I, you know, I... I had a kid once who was probably one of the toughest kids I ever had. Um, you know, he was, you know, he was a little aggressive <laughs> and that's, that's putting him out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he was behind on his reading levels and number sense and all of this, all of this. And, um, and I was really happy one day when uh, a teacher came to me and again, I'm in DC, so I know a lot of people uh, and, and every, you know, everybody knows everybody. DC is a small town. And they came to me and they said, yo, you know, uh, his pops just got out of prison. You should reach out. And so I did. I was able to get in touch with his pops and he started to come to school. And this kid started to really, really turn around just by the mere fact that his dad was showing up for him. Right. And it was like one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And then I come to school on a Monday and my principal pulls me to the side and she says, "Um, did you hear about what happened? And I'm like, no, what's up? And she's like, well, uh, this particular student's dad was killed over the weekend in a triple homicide. And um, oh. yeah, it was, it was su- surreal. Cause I was just talking to his dad the week before. Um, and so a couple of weeks go by and I could, you know, obviously the, the, you could see his demeanor had changed. And um, he looked up at me one day and he, and he was like, Mr. Brooks, like, why did my dad stop coming to see me? And he didn't, you know, it seemed as if he didn't even know, like he, you know, he wasn't even told what happened. And so he, you know, he was like, am I, is my dad going to come back again? You know? And, um, and I had to look at him and tell him, you know, I don't think so. (laughs) And I think you should talk to your mom about why, but it was so hard for me. That was probably one of the toughest experiences I had, but I had many, many experiences that were just so eye opening that again, made me realize 
it's not it's the problem is much bigger than we think you know what i mean it is it's not just that the schools are broken but again these our communities are broken because of all the things for all the reasons right like that that we constantly talk about that we always see as buzz thing buzzwords on twitter like we all know what's going on but there's just not a lot being done and this has been going on for hundreds of years (laughs) you know what i mean it's like and you know a lot of people will talk about a um a post-racist society and or you know i've seen things where people talk about well you know slavery and all of these things were so long ago you know it shouldn't affect us today and it's just crazy it's just so ignorant to think to to think that that would be true you know and if you go into these communities you go to the communities where i'm from you understand exactly what's happening and you start to see it and to be fair it's not just it's these are again it's tied to capitalism right so these are I'm sure happening in places where it's different demographics. You know, I'm from DC that's historically mostly black. You know, at one point DC was called Chocolate City. I'm sure you could go to small, small white towns or, you know, anything where you where you see poverty happening. And it's some of the same right. you see some of the same effects, right? So this is a this is an issue that I think um, like you said, Promise Boy certainly isn't gonna <laughs> fix fix that, but it's allowing conversations to start even as, you know, for me is getting me in front of people yeah. like you and being able to tell my story and, and let people hear me talk, speak. And, and hopefully as conversations start to happen, these are things that can turn around. But anyway, getting back to your question. Yeah. I, I saw some, some really, really upsetting things while I was, while I was a teacher. So was that, yeah. And all of that so true and just so raw and thank you for being here and sharing all of this. Uh, I, I mean, I think that, storytelling is for sure one of the best ways to kind of get conversations flowing about stuff like this. And um, would you say that since a lot of the stuff that you write about is so close to your experiences, is it kind of like an emotional therapeutic journey when you write? For sure. It's very, it's very therapeutic. Um, And it allowed, again, like going back to the the uncle T of it all and, and my own upbringing, it allows me to put it down and, and then see it from, you know, and then reflect on it, like, you know, because as I'm reading back and I'm understanding why I'm writing the things that I'm writing it again, because even in the story, uh, you know, Principal Moore and Uncle T were like the two black men that were prominent figures in the story. And they both yeah. could be seen as villains. Right. And so even for me, I remember at a time going back through it, I felt I really needed to redeem Uncle T in some type of way. Right. And so I, yeah. as I was examining why he was the way he was, and I came to, oh, this is his redemption, the idea that he feels he has to do this for Trey, of course, that starts to reflect on my own life. You know what I mean? And then yeah. and then I start to think about, oh, maybe that's why. And then that allows me to forgive, right? And so it's definitely therapeutic and allows me to just examine things because, like, you, as you pointed out, well, with the questions, like, I'm writing things that are very, very close to me because that's just all I know how to do. So I do think yeah. that that's is advantageous in my own development as a as a human because it allows me to to understand, forgive, let go and heal. Yeah. yeah. Nick, you give me chills. <laughs> <laughs> you really do. You're so amazing. Um and I'm gonna I wish I told you before, I told him before we hopped on here, I was like, I wish I could hang out with you for a lot longer because you just... yeah. I do have one more question I just I ask, um, since this is a YA novel, and you know, you just mentioned that you travel around to schools and you're you're speaking with kids a lot and all that kind of thing. What do you want young people, and especially young black and brown people, mm-hmm. to come away from this book feeling yeah. like? 
you know, I really want them to feel inspired to advocate for themselves. I want them to feel inspired to uh, tell their own story. And I say that Promise Boys is a a book for non-readers. It's a book that I, I, I want, you know, those kids who feel like, oh, reading, reading, reading isn't the coolest thing in the world. I would love for them to read this book and say, you know what? It is cool. It is cool. Stories like this can be told. And if the stories are not there, at least again, for me, it's about inspiring them to tell their own story, right? So they start to write their own things down because now they're saying, oh, I can see myself in a story and it can be engaging. It can be, you know, it can be fun. It can be entertaining and it can be real. Um, but the big thing, again, is also giving them like the permission, giving them the vocabulary, um, giving them the reassurance to advocate for themselves, because these kids are so smart. These kids, I mean, I'm going to schools as kids are asking me really, really heavy questions. They're thinking about a lot. And I remember yeah. me as a kid, I didn't always feel like because I was a kid. And again, because I came up in schools like this that told you to, you know, that that basically told you you couldn't think for yourself. You had to just listen to rules. Anytime I had a thought, I would question my own gut instinct because I'm like, well, I'm just a kid. I don't know anything. Right. And I want them yeah. to understand that that's not the case. They are the ones that that we really should be sitting at the table with and asking them, hey, how do we fix this? And so I hope they come away just understanding that and just being inspired to, again, to, to tell their story and advocate for themselves and kind of lead in this conversation. They're our future. Yeah, right? they are our I future. Think that's- yeah. I think about that a lot, um, especially, I don't know, if just having a baby and just looking at just the future of the world and how it's, I don't know. I totally agree with you. It's, it's uh, like I said, I'm getting the chills and kind of emotional. So. <laughs> no, I really, <laughs> topic. yeah, I really appreciate you having me. And, uh, and uh, you know, if you ever, want, if you're ever in LA, you know, look me up and, and, and we can, and we can have a more in-depth conversation. I would love to kick it. That would be amazing. I, <laughs> I will do that. Um, thank you so much, Nick. I really appreciate you coming on here and I will take you up on that offer. Believe me. So <laughs> I'll see you. <ya. laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And, and, and I can't wait to hear, hear for this to come out and much love. Uh, thank you so much, Nick and everybody go read promise boys. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Bye. We have a newsletter called beyond 300 and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, here we are in Act 2 with the uh, writing topic segment of the show. This is uh, where we have a Charlotte two-minute tip and also a blog post. Um... The tip is uh, by Paul Reale, Rules of Writing Part 2, Outlining and Planning. So let's listen in. Hi, I'm Paul Reale, co-founder of Charlotte Lit, with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is one of a series of tips about the so-called rules of writing. Today, we tackle the common advice that you should outline or at least plan before you start drafting. This is a juicy debate, to say the least. It is indisputable, really, that having an outline or at least a solid plan can make writing a draft easier, especially for longer works like novels or memoirs or business books or self-help. Yet the other side of this debate is that outlining constrains one's natural creativity and maybe even dampens the joy that comes with writing with no particular destination in mind. I think the answer to this conundrum is that there is no answer, or rather, there is no one answer that suits everyone. 
artistic style, creative process, work habits. These are things that are not easily altered. I can tell you with my own writing and from having coached dozens of writers in Charlotte Litt's Authors Lab program, that one's creative process is their creative process. So perhaps each style can learn from the other. If you have the need or desire to outline or plan before you begin writing, then you should do that. But allow creative spontaneity to have its place. Don't be beholden to the outline. Even with an outline, you will discover the story that you're telling as you tell it, just as the blank pagers do. It's perfectly fine to diverge from the outline or throw it out. In fact, a good practice is to stop at intervals and recreate the plan based on where you find the story at that moment. If, on the other hand, you like to begin with a blank page and see what happens, then you should do that. But what you can take from the planner types is this. Once you have set the basic story in motion, it can be very useful to pull back and ask yourself, where might this go? Is there enough here to get a story out of it? What do I think is going to happen? Write a few paragraphs to help get some clarity. Then let fly and see what happens. You already know you'll toss the plan when it no longer works. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Litt, listen to Beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelitt.org slash tips. Uh, thank you, Paul. The age-old debate about uh, outlining or pantsing. Uh, we've talked about this before, and I like the fact that uh, Paul said that uh, there might not be any one particular answer to this question because it all depends on uh, individual writers. So uh, what do you think, uh, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, that, that's true. It is such an individual thing, um, and it feels like it's kind of roughly evenly divided amongst writers. There are a lot of people who are on one side of the spectrum and a lot on the other. So it's it's definitely, it must have something to do with like brain wiring, I would think. <laughs> but um, I, I really liked how Paul said that you can kind of mix up the two styles too. You don't have to be totally um, an outliner or totally somebody who just goes in and, and writes from a blank page. Um, and you can also stop partway through and re- reevaluate like a suggestion of if you've outlined maybe do your outline, start writing, but then stop partway through and reevaluate the outline and see how it kind of lines up with what you're coming up with. And if you need to change the outline, I think I might try that in the future. Or if you're um, pantsing and you just kind of start writing, then stop partway through and, and think about, okay, what do I want to do next? Do I need to start making a plan from here? Um, so you can find like a hybrid between the two, which I think is healthy. So Hannah, um, I hadn't really thought about this before, but how much of book publicity involves either planning or pantsing is there a little bit of both (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i'm gonna get in trouble answering this question how i do it it, it, (laughs) i think a lot of people would love to think about the publicist uh, (laughs) but uh, for authors as well is it a mix is it all planning is it uh some things happen to have on the fly i'm sure but uh what are your thoughts on this I mean, yeah, it's kind of a a big answer to that question because I think um, in a lot of ways, publicity is totally just pantsing it out, like, for real, because you don't really know um, when something is going to happen a lot of the time. So I feel like I'm always kind of, like, on or looking for something or trying to make sure my eyes are peeled for whatever comes in because, I mean, that's that's one thing. You can't really plan for everything, I feel like, especially if you're the kind of, you know, publicist like I am where I just put 
everything everywhere. Like I just, I mean, and I do plan, I, I would say definitely a hybrid. Some people are for sure more tailored in their planning and just more regimented. I think I'm definitely not like that, but I do plan as far as like, okay, where was the market I'm targeting? I have to have that, or I'm not going to be able to, you know, do a good job. So I would say it starts with a plan, but then I just pants it (laughs) all the way. So I like have, have an idea and a plan of where I'm headed. But then once I'm actually doing the outreach, doing the work, I'm kind of just like having ideas come to me as I, you know, flesh out pitches and things like that. Um, It never really stops with the plan for me. So it's, it's kind of just like I plan until I'm at the entryway and then I just go crazy. Um, if that's a (laughs) sensible answer. (laughs) No, it's back to the, you know, what works. Um, and you know, this ties into the blog post is coming in a little bit because I'm talking about the three act book launch, which does involve some planning, at least for that. But there's certain things you can't necessarily plan in publicity because it happens, uh, and you look for that opportunity quickly. But I think Mm -hmm. I thought about this question of outlining and planning and having interviewed a, a number of authors and thought about this myself. I think I find that uh, it, there can be a progression here because a lot of times with someone's first novel, there might not be as much planning. There could be. I mean, sir, you outlined your first novel, uh, but there could be, because there's more time, a chance to experiment without having a full-blown outline. Whereas if you do well with that first one, you're trying to meet a deadline for the next one, you might think, you know what, maybe I need to adjust a little bit here. I might not might mm-hmm. not write out the whole outline, but I might outline three or four, five, six chapters or something, or at least, and they're all different kinds of outlines. Some people that we've interviewed have these, you know, 50 to 100 page outlines and others might have two or three pages that are just jotting down some places that they're going to go in the book. So um, it's not one size fits all, but uh, that's why we talk about these. So you can find the size that fits you best. How about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're gonna we're gonna I come like right it. back here uh, <laughs> with our blog posts for the day in just a second. For all things Charlotte Readers podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. Hey, listeners, we are back with a uh, stranger to the show, um, Landis Wade. I don't know, like, who this man is. <laughs> How did he get in here? Just kidding. <laughs> I know. Who let this guy in here? <laughs> um, but, so we all know Landis, our our main guy, is here. Uh, our only guy. <laughs> Sherry. Yeah, our only guy. He's, I like he's that, got the guy. He's the only guy. <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah, even our well, actually, William Sarah's oh, yeah. dog yeah, is yeah. is a young man. So, <laughs> um, Landis is sharing some of his insight today on uh, book launches in his blog post called "The Three Act Book Launch." So, let's take a listen to that. The book launch in three acts. The most important part of a book launch is planning ahead. First, the prologue to the three act structure for selling a book. One. Write the best book you can. Write well beyond the first draft. Be relentless in revising your work. Hire and listen to editors. Let the manuscript rest and work it over until it hurts. And number two, hire an experienced book cover artist and take their advice. Here's a tip. Book covers do sell books. Number three, solicit quality blurbs and hone your synopsis for the back cover. And number four, format the interior and exterior like the best books in the stores. 
Act one, the nine month period prior to launch. Number one, pick a launch date and work backwards in planning the launch calendar. Number two, if you plan to work with a publicist, engage with them early so you can plan together. Three, plan your in-person online events, bookstores, book clubs, civic clubs, podcasts, audio and video, and wherever and however the themes of your book fit well. And here's a tip. Offer something besides your novel. That is, perhaps a talk on the themes or the nonfiction pieces in the story. Number four, plan creative approaches to your events, in-author conversations, costumes, and skits, using your platform creatively to highlight your work through a blog, podcast, or YouTube. Number five, if you are looking for a particular venue for your launch or other events, plan way ahead. Number six, complete the book, the interior content, the interior design, the exterior content with synopsis and blurbs, book covers uh, for print and ebook at least four or five months prior to the launch date so you can create advanced reader copies in print or ebook for your advanced readers. They're going to need several months to read your book prior to launch date. And note this, they can leave advanced reviews before the book releases on Goodreads, BookBub, and Barnes & Noble. However, when it comes to Amazon, Amazon does not allow reviews to be left online until the release date. So here's a tip. Do not have family members leave reviews. Do not ask for five-star reviews. Do not pay for reviews. Do not offer other consideration reviews. Ask instead for honest reviews. And know this, uh, providing a free copy of your book for an honest review is not a violation of Amazon's terms and conditions. Number seven, send advanced reader copies to trade reviewers three or four months prior to release. Indie authors can solicit and pay for honest book reviews from Kirkus, Book Life, Midwest Book Reviews, and more. Number eight, plan your cover reveal a few months before release. Number nine, set your book up for pre-order online three to four months in advance and put the links on your website. For Amazon and certain online sites, you can only put your ebook up for pre-order, not your print book. If you put your print book on Ingram Sparks, you can set up an on-sale date and create pre-orders there for your print book and also with independent bookstores and IndieBound. Number 10, work on your metadata. Pick categories for your online metadata that are narrow and fit your book. It's how readers who search online find your book. You might try Publisher Rocket. It helps you identify those categories and also keywords for promotion. Number 11, if you produce an audiobook, Plan four months ahead for the production of the audiobook. You want to have the audiobook ready at the same time the print and ebook come out. Number 12, decide how you distribute the book online. Perhaps it'll be Kindle Unlimited, or you might decide to go wide, which would put you on online sites like Barnes & Noble, Kobo, Google Play, and Apple. Both of these approaches have pros and cons. Number 13, pitch your book for book awards. Number 14, pitch print media to feature the book. Number 15, plan and execute pre-launch appearances on podcasts or news shows. Number 16, plan your launch week social media promotions. Number 17, consider planning some online advertising around the launch date.
And here's a final tip for Act 1. Use an online graphic design tool, perhaps Canva, to improve your visual messaging. Uh, even someone like myself uh, can create some uh, nice-looking graphics uh, with this tool. Act 2, the first nine months from launch date. This is the time for boots on the ground, book launch, bookstores, book clubs, civic clubs, retirement communities, library events, festivals, history organizations, and the list goes on. Here's a tip. Take photos at events and post them on your website and social media. This is also the time for other online events, you know, more podcasts, radio, and online panels. And it's the time to be creative and have fun with your promotions. Uh, I had a lot of fun events uh, during this phase of the uh, book launch, uh, dressing up as uh, Captain Jack, uh, who was one of the historical figures uh, explored in my novel, Deadly Declarations. We did events at uh, uh, bookstores. We also went to uh, breweries and uh, we had fun on podcasts and uh, yeah, lot, lots of activity that, uh, that was fun. Plus I did a number of uh, in-author conversations, which I think is a sort of a double boost there because you're actually featuring the author who's interviewing you in that promotion. And so um, their network learns about you and your network learns about them. This is also the time to take chances, you know, submit to BookBub, try to get a chirp promotion. Um, I did both and was fortunate to get a BookBub deal uh, for Daily Decorations and also a chirp promotion. Chirp is the affiliate of BookBub that deals with audiobooks. So they ran a promotion of the audiobook um, about three or four months after they did a promotion on BookBub. Now, the BookBub deal, uh, you're, you're giving your book away for free, but I think Fifteen or 20,000 people downloaded the book, and as a result, I ended up with uh, five to 600 reviews within a three- to four-month period uh, on Amazon and on Goodreads. So it does make a difference. Um, be prepared, though. Um, not everybody's going to enjoy the book. You're going to get uh, uh, ratings all over the place. Uh, but, um, you know, that's to be expected because not every book is for everybody. Uh, it will give your book more credibility uh, to have reviews that are kind of all over the place. But hopefully settle somewhere in the four uh, to five range, uh, which I was fortunate to have that do for daily decorations. And the chart promotion actually uh, gets the audiobook out to a number of people in a short period of time. And you can supplement both of these with online advertising um, to help get information out about how these uh, books and these audiobooks are available at reduced prices. Another thought uh, for this second act is to, uh, to look and listen for leads to take uh, your show on the road to other places. Uh, and anything that you didn't do in the pre-launch uh, phase, do it now. Uh, and here's a final tip for this act, too. Don't say no to opportunities, no matter how small the crowd. One book club or one civic club uh, or one gathering somewhere might lead to another uh, and then another. Uh, it's worked for me. I've, I've found that uh, when I've spoken to certain groups about uh, the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence and the history that relates to the uh, to the book uh, that other groups interested in that history have invited me to come speak. Uh, book clubs uh, as well who like the retirement uh, community angle um, have had me come out. I think I've spoken to most every retirement community in the Charlotte area uh, and others, so maybe the next time I'll go to retirement communities elsewhere. But use get, getting back to this idea of promoting your themes, use this opportunity to either uh, talk about the themes of your book or the history in your book or something other than just, you know, buy my book because I, I think I wrote a nice mystery. All right, here we are, Act 3. Uh, this is the future. 
Uh, in Act 3, the book marketing continues beyond that nine-month period. Uh, some will look the same, like book clubs, civic organizations. Um, I'm, I'm, in my, in, I'm about a year out now uh, with the launch of Daily Decorations. I'm getting invitations to speak. Uh, that's helpful. Uh, but others will be different. You might be starting to be invited to uh, writing panels or submitting articles to places, um, and you can use your experience uh, and what you've written about, the themes you've written about, uh, to try to get on panels and to submit articles. And you can plan more events. Maybe you market uh, more of the book's themes and, and the nonfiction aspects of it, or you start looking out to, to go to festivals and that type of thing. And also, in, during this uh, Act 3, learn and try some online advertising. You might try BookBub ads, Facebook ads, or Amazon ads. And uh, always publish more content, uh, whether that be through contest or writing short pieces or finish writing that next book. In my case, I decided to take on during this period uh, the task of putting out the uh, uh, right quote series, uh, these uh, inspirational and practical quotes uh, of these 500-plus interviews from the podcast. Appreciate the help from uh, Hannah uh, and Sarah on that. Uh, but that, that was a time-consuming thing, and hopefully that will help. Uh, maybe somebody who reads that might uh, you know, hey, say, I'm going to look at what else Landis has written. So think about that, too. Whenever you're writing, uh, your, what you're writing, if it resonates with somebody, they might look at something else that, that you've written as well. Okay, a quick wrap up here. You are the hero of your marketing journey. And like any good hero's journey in fiction, you will face obstacles and you will face setbacks. And there will be that moment where all feels lost and you want to toss it in. But there will be moments also, if you stick with it, the good things happen. And when it comes to marketing and selling, number one, just do it. Get engaged, plan, experiment. Number two, just ask. Ask for help, ask for favors. As one of my authors, I think it was uh, Elliot Parker said on the podcast, he said his grandfather told him, look, Elliot, what's the worst thing that can happen? They can't eat you. So keep that in mind. When you're marketing, they can't eat you. And if you have a book coming out next year, start thinking yesterday about a marketing plan that uniquely suits you and your book, both online and in person. Thanks for listening and happy book launching. So much good, good information one. in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Hannah, I learned it all from you. You were my guide through this process. Oh, my gosh. I was like, wow, this is, I'm so proud of you right now. You <laughs> took such, well, you know, I will say, I feel like you're like the ideal. We did, we shared one of my posts about like the, how to work with a publicist, mm -hmm. I think, yeah. at some point, And you're pretty much like the ideal client-ish. Yeah. I feel like we are calling you that, but <laughs> like <laughs> partner, you know what I mean? Like, cause yeah. you just, you have so many ideas and like you kind of said in the post, be, don't be like afraid to um, do something small, like be willing to do anything. And I think that's such a huge thing. Um, I love how you made this into kind of a checklist. Mm -hmm. So for all of our listeners who are writers and are looking into their own futures and planning their book launches, this is like the best thing you can do to just print this blog post out and just like, put a little box next to everything and <laughs> just be like, did you take this? Um, did you write this from your own notes or did you kind of, how did you organize all of this in your own mind? I started thinking about it because uh, the book was supposed to be three acts and I made it four acts, but you know, typically people think in a three act structure and I was thinking, I wonder what a three act structure for a book launch would look like. And clearly the side that's, uh, like in a book, the first act is sort of the inciting incident, and it's the middle that gets big. Well, I think act one of the book launch is the bigger part because you got to do all this planning as a lead up to the launch. And I made a concerted effort with your, as you recall, Hannah, when I called you to help me 
with this. I said, I want it's to like really plan ahead, you know, because, yeah. you know, the first couple of books I didn't plan ahead. And, and even though the book was ready seven months away, where it's like, and you want to chomp at the bit to get it out, you got to put the brakes on a little bit and say, no, treat this like a traditional publisher would treat it and have mm-hmm. some lead up to it so that you can plan some things. Because we wouldn't been able to get the, the reviews from Kirkus and Book Life and, and the others, and we wouldn't have been able to get the advanced readers. And if it wasn't for the advanced readers who posted reviews in the first 30 days, I might not have gotten the BookBub deal because I already had close to 80 to 100 reviews when we pitched to BookBub, and they said, oh, okay, well, people are reading this. So, you know, I do think that first act is critical, that nine-month mm-hmm. period. Now, you can be doing some other things during that time, finishing, polishing, that kind of thing, but it is to have the book, uh, I think Claire Fullerton told me, she she's traditionally published, but she says she tells her editor, you know, I need the I need the advanced copy at least four months out, you know, because you got you can't expect somebody to read your book in two weeks and put up a review. Yeah. They've got busy lives. So give them a couple of months and then follow up. So, yeah, that whole thing was born out of uh, watching what other authors have done through their publicist and talking with you. And as you recall, this whole idea of a calendar and planning backwards, that's exactly what we talked about. Okay, what's going to be the yeah. lost date? Do we have enough time between now and then to do all these things? And then the other thing, and you mentioned it, and I think I've mentioned it before, but working with a publicist is a partnership. It's not a, mm-hmm. it's not a hey, what are you going to do for me, uh, yeah. Mr. or Mrs. Publicist? <laughs> uh, because you're going to be doing certain things that I can't do as an author, and I'm going to be doing certain things yeah. that you can't do as a publicist. But if you work together, uh, it'll make it happen. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, Landis. I know you're in like the very early stages of working on a second novel, a follow-up to Deadly Decorations. Are you already thinking ahead to this sort of thing, or at least with like looking for content tie-ins for marketing for the another book? Well, as I was listening to this, I was I was getting tired thinking about <laughs> all the things. <laughs> I was getting tired. Was you know, I was. Getting, I said, <laughs> really, <laughs> all that stuff. Uh, do I really want to do this again? again? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing, though. Yeah. I'm going to jump in here real quick and just say that because you, you know, put forth all of this effort and time into having these conversations with me and other authors and just people who are like in this, war- this crazy publishing writing world, you're already like planning all the time. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, you know what to expect now and you're kind of actively doing things, whether you realize it or not, that's going to help you with your second one, you know? Right. And where I've sort of fallen down in the third act, I said, you should get more invested in advertising. It's on my list. I've got, uh, you know, the coursework. I need to study it. I need to do some sort of online advertising and figure out how that works because as an indie author, you know, a lot of, now that we've built up the rest of this base, starting to experiment with some advertising is important. But to answer your question, Sarah, um, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm this summer, uh, going to be taking, as this is coming out, working harder on the next book, doing some more research and doing some writing as I get beyond the moves and everything we're doing. Um, but I will be thinking about uh, that timeline as well the further I get along in the writing so that I can kind of plan a, a, a release date for it and not just uh, you know run the editing right up to the day that it releases because then you can't get the word out to people. You can't get advanced readers. You can't get it to people to, to review it. Um, and it does make a difference, um, to be able to do all those things in advance. You don't think about it at the time because there are two aspects to this. One is sort of building a foundation 
for the series and the other is selling books. And if you're too focused on, you know, selling books and how many books are getting sold, you're going to miss the point of the uh, of laying the foundation for what's going to become come later. Think about it. All, a lot of authors, traditionally indie, if they're still talking about their book two or three years later, that's a good thing, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I, I like how you, like Hannah was saying, you kind of laid this out like a checklist because it is like hearing it all at once. It's daunting. <laughs> like there's so much to do if you really want to, you know, publicize your book, um, especially if you're doing it on your own as an indie author. And I, I think if you look online too, there's just such an overwhelming wealth of information. If yeah. you start Googling things about how to publish a book, how to market your book. Um, so it's nice to have something where you can kind of break it down into a more concrete chronological like here's what you do one step at a time kind of checklist yeah and uh, so we've we put it up on the the blog the community blog so it's there if y'all want to check it out and uh, as always if you've got questions you can email and uh, you know happy to support and help um, and uh, you know it's um, it's just part of the deal I'm, I mean I know I'm speaking at it from an indie you know publisher but a lot of the things that are on the list that I talked about, it's almost like, have you ever heard somebody say that when you go into the hospital, you need to be an advocate for yourself, right? Well, when you go into traditional publishing, you need to know these things so you can be an advocate and not just trust blindly that the traditional publisher is going to do everything they need to do. Hannah's mentioned this before, that some, a lot of traditional publishers hire their own publicist or they work with people a la carte to help them with certain things. Um, but unless you know about all that and you're trusting blindly the traditional publisher, you might find there's not getting there's not much publicity happen, happening. I know uh, Sarah, you're traditionally published, so um, having more information is probably helpful in that regard, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I was published with my first novel, I was totally green. I didn't know anything about the publishing world, um, and so I did just kind of like whatever the publisher did. I went along with that, and I took the opportunities that they gave me, and I wasn't really seeking additional um, publicity opportunities on my own. Which, in hindsight, I wish I had done. I I think, uh, you know, whenever I put out my next book, whether it's traditionally published or indie or whatever it might be, I would also be more proactive about seeking additional stuff on my own because it's true, you know, that most authors, even if you have a publisher who's lining up interviews or readings or that sort of thing for you, you're still going to need to do more on your own because um, there's just, you know, it's such a competitive world out there. You have to put yourself out there as much as possible. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, do it, folks. Do the three-act book launch and uh, you know, get your books out there. Let's, uh, we'll be right back with uh, our book recommendations. We've got a couple of uh, elevator pitches and uh, what's coming next on the podcast, so stay with us. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. All right, listeners, here we are in uh, Act 3. We've got some book recommendations. We'll start with Hannah this time. Hannah, what you got? Yeah, today I am recommending The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse by Charles <laughs> Maxey. I like the title. 
Yeah, I've got a cool title this time. Um, this is a book, and I think I've mentioned Mary Best Dunn before. She's She recommended so many great books to mm-hmm. me. She's one of my former um, authors that I've worked with, and she's super talented herself, but she has just like a great library of titles. So she, this is one of the books she recommended to me. Um, and it's actually kind of an interesting, uh, like you wouldn't, it's, it's sort of could be an adult's book, but also I'm using it as more of a children's book. There's these beautiful illustrations and kind of just like, little tidbits like about kindness and giving and friendship and love and stuff in there and um, all of the characters are a boy a mole a fox and a horse (laughs) and so it's just really cute and so I got a copy for my grandmother it's a great gift like and then um, for Gwen I just feel like all these cute illustrations and great messages I've just been kind of reading back through all of it with her and it's just such a nice way to end the day really with something like that but it doesn't you know I think it's good I, I love stuff like it's almost like poetry you know just kind mm-hmm. of little bits of something to make you smile or realize like actually the world's kind of cool on a day where it's blowing up so <laughs> um it's it's a good one all right uh, sounds fun I love the title Sarah what you got um, so I'm recommending Family Planning by Karen Mahajan, which I picked this up at a book swap and read it maybe a couple of years ago. Um, and I was just really struck right away by his prose. I mean, he's one of those writers who can just craft a sentence so beautifully and so precisely. Um, and this was his first novel. His second, uh, The Association of Small Bombs, I believe, was a finalist for the National Book Award. But this one takes place in New Delhi. Um, it's kind of about a boy and his father. The The boy is this teenager who he's part of a very large family. He has dreams of being a rock star. Um, his father works in government, but his job is kind of on the line. So he's trying to save his career. And it's sort of about the two of them and how they're navigating their relationship. And it it's a good family dra- drama, but it's also really funny. Like he's one of those writers who can really weave the humor into the language in a very deft way um so i just i really enjoyed his writing and i'm hoping to read his second book as well when i get a chance all right uh sounds good um i'm recommending this month uh, books by louis the moore he's the uh prolific uh western author um but also um he's written some other pieces too one of the one of the ones he wrote uh, as a thriller um, that I remember called The Last of the Breed. It's sort of an epic novel. It's a U.S. Air Force uh, Major Joe Mack. Uh, he's, uh, his experimental aircraft is forced down in Russia, and he has to escape a Soviet prison camp. Um, and he's sort of stuck in the Siberian wilderness, or he's got to make his way across it, and he has to use all of his uh, skills uh, to do that. There's only one way. He's got to follow the path of his ancestors over the Bering Strait and across the sea to America. But uh, there's someone who's tracking him along the way. And, uh, you know, that's what leads to it being a thriller. So uh, (laughs) I enjoyed it. Uh, He's a good writer. All right, we got one from Mark West here. Hello, this is Mark West with the storied Charlotte blog. Now that summer vacation is here, kids are, of course, taking a break from school, but that doesn't mean that they should take a break from reading. My book recommendation today is an excellent children's book called One Crazy Summer. It's by Rita Williams Garcia, and it came out a few years ago. When it was published, it won all sorts of awards, including the Greta Scott King Book Award. One Crazy Summer takes place in 1968. 
In this story, a group of sisters travel to Oakland for the summer to see their mother. Well, she arranged for them to spend their time at a summer camp run by the Black Panthers. Needless to say, this is a summer to remember. I highly recommend it. I love that title, too, One Crazy Summer. Mark. So if you all are out there listening <laughs> to this during your summer break, I hope you're having one crazy summer, uh, both reading uh, and on the beach or in the mountains or wherever. But, uh, yeah, and so we've also got uh, a couple of elevator pitches uh, today. Uh, thank you all for submitting those. Uh, first one here is by uh, author John Gertie. John uh, was an All-American basketball player at Davidson College in my class at Davidson, uh, and he's also an author of some nonfiction books. Uh, so let's listen in to his pitch. We are all somewhere along a developmental continuum relating to issues around race. In the journey of an old white dude in the age of Black Lives Matter, I challenge you to move a bit further along that continuum. While people of color should occupy the majority of space to articulate these issues, there's only so much that black people can tell white people about them. Thus, I write specifically as one old white dude directly to other white folks. It's a book of real-life experiences, research conducted, and lessons learned, ending with an inspirational call to action. All right. Uh, well, John, Gertie, if you're listening out there uh, from one old white dude to another, I hope you're doing well. <laughs> and uh, uh, it sounds like an interesting book. Wow. Uh, we've got uh, another one here from uh, Rebecca Wheeler. Let's listen in. Do you long for a time when Doc Martens and flannel was the pinnacle of fashion? A time that family secrets could only be uncovered with good old-fashioned snooping? When teenagers could roam freely without GPS trackers in their pockets? When the only way to ask someone out was by actually talking to them? Included on the American Library Association January 2023 book list, Whispering Through Water, a YA novel by Rebecca Winrick Wheeler, navigates family dynamics, young love, and female autonomy with a little 1990s nostalgia. Okay, I love, I love that. When, when you act, actually had to see somebody face-to-face to ask them out, how nerve-wracking yeah. was that? Now you just chat them <laughs> up on whatever, you know? So. <laughs> I would be terrible at that. <laughs> yeah, social media, whatever, yeah. Uh, well, thanks to John and Rebecca for submitting those. You can submit your own as well. Sarah, you want to tell them how? Uh, yeah, it's pretty easy. Just go to our website. I think if you go to the contact uh, tab, there's a way to get to the place where you can record your audio straight through the website and just keep it to about 30 seconds or less. Keep it tight. All right. Well, um, and uh, we've also got, uh, we, we've said that we would from time to time, uh, in appreciation of our street team members and the, uh, others who've been uh, reading the right uh, quotes and leaving reviews, we'd uh, share some of those uh, reviews. Sarah, do you have some more to share today? Yeah, um, we've got two pulled out here to share. Um, the first is from the lovely Judy Goldman. Have you ever wanted to sit down with the author of the book you just finished reading and ask a bunch of questions? Well, Landis Wade has done just that with his remarkable podcast, Charlotte Reader's Podcast. He has been asking authors questions for years, and now look what he's done. He pulled many of the answers he heard and compiled them in books. Apparently, this is the first one, and it's a doozy. So much fun to read, so tantalizing to think about all the different perspectives from these writers. I highly recommend um, yeah, well, thanks, Judy, that. for that. Uh, but it was Hannah and Sarah who also helped. Uh, we couldn't have gotten, gotten yep. this thing out there without uh, <laughs> y'all. It uh, It is uh, fun to ask questions and to steal all these good uh, tips from, from authors who know how to do things. 
Yeah, and then we have um, another review from Mary Best Dunn, who says, The writing life with all its warts and rewards is showcased in Landis Wade's excellent compendium of eye-opening responses to interview questions writers were asked on a Charlotte Readers podcast over the years. As a writer myself and proud interviewee, I found a nugget of inspiration and encouragement in each carefully honed segment, my new favorite resource. All right, and uh, good synergy there, because you mentioned Mary Best earlier. Yeah, yeah. I was just about to say, is she was she's the star here <laughs> today. <laughs> That's right, that was a fun interview we had with her back uh, with her book. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so we appreciate that, folks. If you want to join our street team, there's a link there on the contact page to do that. Also at our uh, at the podcast books page on the website, you can find it there. Uh, we will uh, send you the books uh, as they're coming out uh, uh, in ebook form with clickable links so that you can actually in the writer index in the back, if you click on a writer, it's going to take you directly to their uh, interview on the podcast. So another way that you can experience, um, you know, what these authors have to say uh, through the index in the Write Quotes uh, series. So I uh, hope you'll join up. And, hey, all we're asking you to do is leave honest reviews. And if you were listening to my uh, earlier blog post, we're not asking for any kind of reviews. We're just asking for honest reviews. And that means, uh, Mom, don't leave a review. You, you, you've already done your part, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so... Uh, uh, appreciate that. All right, uh, right after this, we're going to have uh, what's coming next on the podcast. You can subscribe to Charlotte Readers Podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms, and the best part is it's free. Oh, and if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review because when you do, we travel much farther and wider in podcast land. All right, uh, listeners, uh, we're back. Uh, Sarah, you want to let uh, everyone know what's coming next on the podcast? Sure. Um, we've got a great episode coming up with debut author and esteemed editor Jenny Jackson's novel, Pineapple Street, which was the most anticipated book of 2023 by Vogue and Time. It has received praise from numerous outlets, including Southern Living, Lit Hub, Kirkus, She Reads, and Booklist. We're also going to have a blog post from Jeff Sobel, book lover and a fellow podcaster, with his blog post, Ask Your Doctor if Podcasting is Right for You. And then we're going to have um, elevator pitches and book recommendations. All right, sounds fun. We'll do a little conversation about podcasting in the next episode so uh hannah take us home all right everybody just read on ride on and rock on <laughs> <laughs>